A very good evening to all of you and welcome back to Kingdom 101. We took a short break and we are back on track. Uh, we want to begin by praying, um, but let me say hi to those who are listening into our sound call. Also, good to have you with us. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we want to thank you. Once again, we thank you for Scripture, Lord. And each time we declare the Word, we pray that Jesus will be magnified, lifted up, glorified. We ask that you will teach us the things about the Kingdom. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us and bring us into understanding. So be with me and be with all listening. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in our own spiritual journeys in life, anything, you know, for that matter, I think we will all have expectations. We come with expectations and sometimes the world will tell us you have to manage your expectations. Just in case you have too much of an expectation and it's not met, then you fall into some disappointment or you get upset. But in our walk with God, is it not true that we also have expectations of God? Whether you think about it or not, or do you write it down formally, usually, you know, we don't put it down in that way. We don't process it in that way, but we think of who He is, right? We have an expectation of who this God is, uh, how He should act, how He should be, or how He should come through for us in certain situations. Uh, In fact, the word theology or theologians, Many of the people who are laity or lay people in the church will say, I'm not a theologian, you know, let's leave it to the academic people and all. But the truth is, we are all theologians. We are all theologians with a small T. If you are afraid of a capital letter T, then you just look at yourself as uh, having or trying to understand God from your own perspective, your own point of view. What do you expect of Him? Who is He to you? And how do you expect Him to hear you, uh, relate to you, and so on? And with these expectations, sometimes He does not respond as we expect. And that's where, you know, everything sort of uh, gets thrown to, and up in the wind and all. God does not move or respond the way that we expect. And that is where we begin to have a lot of questions. We ask all the whys. Uh, Doubt begins to set in. Uh, We experience disappointment. We are discouraged. And for some people, if they don't nip it quickly in the bud enough, they can be very disillusioned because they expected a certain thing of God um, and did not come through. So how do we respond? And tonight's teaching is going to address that because we're going to look at a passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. And as I read this, you will see that John the Baptist... He himself had expectations of Jesus too. And somehow things didn't turn out as he had expected. In fact, he came to a point where he just had to clarify some of these expectations and he had questions to bring to Jesus. So let's read this text, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, these six verses would constitute 
can we say a first part? And next time when we come back, we will explore the second part to this entire story. But we will make some observations and I hope it will help us as we perhaps consider our own expectations or more accurately, consider how we will handle sometimes our mis-expectations you know, when things don't happen as we would expect them to happen. Let's start by making some broad observations. This passage is about John and Jesus. And you know that they are cousins. If you have journeyed with us, John was first introduced in this book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 3. The interesting thing about this chapter is Matthew begins with John, but he ends the chapter 3 with Jesus. Why? Because John was introduced as a character in this chapter, but later on, as he shares, he points to Jesus, and it ends with the baptism of Jesus. Now, as we consider our passage in Matthew chapter 11, and also to review when we then last heard about John, we see two interesting verses that form like a bracket, and it contains certain things in between these two verses that would help us understand this passage a little bit more. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So this first verse tells us Jesus hears about John. Then in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, which we just read, and when John had heard in prison about the works of the Christ, he sent then two disciples to ask Jesus a certain question. So in Matthew 11, verse 2, John hears about Jesus. Isn't that an interesting twist? Jesus hears about John in prison, and then he goes and starts his ministry in Galilee. And then John hears about Jesus whilst he's in prison. And these two verses sort of like give you a little bracket because in between these two verses, Matthew sort of goes on a little bit of a detour and shares with us the very first discourse of Jesus, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then later on, he goes in Matthew 8 and 9, is a narrative where Jesus then performs the miracles and brings the disciples uh, into a training stint as he goes around. Finally, in Matthew chapter 10, which we just finished over the last few sessions, we see Jesus' second discourse, and we broadly term it as Team Jesus, right? Taking the disciples or sending the disciples out and giving them instructions. So if you look at the chapters 5, 6, 7, really it's the declaration and the teaching of the kingdom. Chapters 8 and 9 is the demonstration of the kingdom and the training of the disciples. Chapter 10 would then be the delegation of kingdom people and the tasking of Team Jesus. So it's a sandwich between John getting into prison and then John now listening and hearing things about Jesus from prison. Matthew chapter 11 verse 1 then would be a transitional verse. It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding His 12 disciples, which means after He sends them out, gives them these instructions, and then now he departs from there to teach and preach in their cities. So if you look at this, the immediate context really is Matthew chapter 10. To understand 11 properly, you have to understand chapter 10. You cannot just pull 11 you know, and, and try to interpret it by itself. What's Matthew chapter 10? 
Jesus' instructions and warnings to those being sent out on kingdom assignment. Now, once you understand that and you look at chapter 11, you begin to see it reads like a little case study, right? Matthew is saying, now these are Jesus' instructions to his disciples, sending them out. Suddenly, you have this guy, John the Baptist, who is on kingdom assignment, and he is experiencing almost the very thing that Jesus was talking about that you've got to be careful, and then this is what it means uh, when you are moving on kingdom assignment. And he draws from Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 for support material. And this is what it means to be on kingdom assignment. This is what some of you might go through and also experience. So once I give you this broad context, you can then see how Matthew 11 is like a case study, an illustration of someone who's actually going through some of these challenges. And in verses 1 to 6, we see John's certain doubts that he displays and some of his discouraging maybe moments. And I can tell you, we can, we can identify with John, right? When he asks some of these things. And I pray, hopefully, as we go through this, it will help to answer some of our own questions that we face in times of doubt or if we experience discouragement when we are on kingdom assignment. So that's John and Jesus. Now, having given you that overview, let's now look at John's appointment and his assignment. In the teaching of our Keeper's Awakening, I've begun to make this point a little bit clearer or emphasize it a little bit more. To have an appointment is one thing. To know the assignment that comes out of the appointment is totally a different thing, right? Some people lump these two things together, and yes, they are closely related, but I think it helps us if we begin to see that there is a slight difference between these two things. So for example, number one, John's appointment. What was his appointment? We know from Scripture that he's been appointed to be a forerunner, right? He's coming before Jesus to do something. He's also appointed to be a voice. Now, this is his appointment. If he doesn't know his assignment properly, then he's coming as a forerunner. He's running all over the place. Huh? And it doesn't mean anything to anyone. If he doesn't know his appointment or his assignment as a voice, then although he has a voice, he might be using the voice in a very wrong way. He's saying the wrong things or he's trying to declare something that is not correct. So an appointment is good, but it will be more helpful if we begin to know what that appointment entails and what the assignment is that flows out from the appointment. If you study John the Baptist, and we've done a session on this, and if you read the different passages in Matthew, in John, Mark, in Luke you will see that his assignment will comprise a couple of these points. Number one, he proclaimed the kingdom. The first thing he did, he had a voice and he was not afraid to use it. The first line recorded of him, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you compare with Matthew chapter 10. What was the first thing Jesus said to the disciples to do after I send you out? Go and preach the kingdom of God. Repent. Go and tell everyone. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. You have to change the way you think, change the way you move, change the way you live because the kingdom is breaking through right now. So firstly, John proclaims the kingdom of God. Next, he points to the king of this kingdom. Proclaiming is one thing, but if there's no king of this kingdom, it means nothing. 
So he is always saying, don't look at me. I mean, I may be doing a great work down here, but I'm only the forerunner, the one that's coming after me. Now he is the one that you should be looking at. And then in John, the Gospel of John, the disciples of John come to him and say, hey, look, you know, everybody is going to Jesus right now. And he says, that's cool. No problem with that. Why? Because he is the bridegroom. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. I'm proclaiming him. I'm pointing to him. He must increase and I must decrease. And there's something we've got to learn here. The assignments are not about us. The assignments that we have will always be about the kingdom of God and will always point to Jesus. We must never, never forget that. Sometimes when we are successful in doing a certain thing, we begin to think that we are the main ones. You know, we are the ones who will make things happen. Next, he not only proclaimed the kingdom or pointed to the king, he prepared the way. Now, how did he prepare the way? Luke says it very clearly. He is to make ready a people for the Lord. Jesus was going to come and John was saying, I will prepare this way for you. He was preparing the people. He was not just sweeping the road to make sure it's clean. He's sweeping and he's provoking hearts so that the hearts will be right, correctly aligned. That the king, when he comes, there will be hearts that would receive this king. And so some of the sub-themes that John would preach and declare would be, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your ways. You've got to return to the ways of the kingdom. And if you say you repent, make sure you mean it. Will you bear fruits worthy of repentance? All this you will find in Matthew chapter 3. Don't just talk, talk only, you know. Your lives have to show it. Don't just say you're awakened. You've got to get aligned. Don't just say you're aligned. You've got to move on this assignment, right? You've got to show fruits of repentance. He called the people to holiness. He called the people to a standard of righteousness. He says, come on, this king is coming. It's a righteous kingdom. You've got to live correct. Otherwise, you're not ready. He proclaims salvation. He pointed to the light. And the best is this. He warned the people of a final judgment of a wrath that is to come. He was not afraid of preaching about hellfire. And he says, you be careful because I only baptize you with water. But the one who's going to come after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat he will bring into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenching fire. And so when you ask for a baptism of fire by the Holy Spirit, you better be careful what you're asking for. Today we keep saying, Oh Lord, send the fire, send the fire. Drawing from that verse. But that verse actually says, unquenchable fire. And I believe it is referring to an eternal judgment. And so you don't want that kind of a fire. And so if you compare with Matthew chapter 10, which we just did, do you remember that part where Jesus then also warns the people, don't fear man, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So once you see chapter 10 and you see chapter 11, you can understand it in its context and its relationship. That was John's appointment and that was some of the aspects of his assignment. Now, as he moved on his kingdom assignment, was he very popular? I mean, people came to him to be baptized, but he was not always very popular or well-liked. For one, he called out the religious leader's hypocrisy. Oh, he had very strong words, man. You brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath that is to come, you know. He called them out. I don't think the religious leaders liked him very much. The next thing was he called out Herod's relationship with his brother Philip's wife. Herod's brother's name was Philip, 
and Herod was doing a hanky-panky with the brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And then later on, she was with him, and this is definitely not a good stuff. It's definitely not righteousness. Now, John could have said, none of my business. It's okay. I mean, uh, you can do what you want to do. Um, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. But you need to understand, Herod himself, he declared himself to be the king of the Jews. Now, if you're going to be the king of the Jews, the Jews are known to be kingdom people, God's holy people and righteous people of the kingdom. If you are going to proclaim yourself as the king of the Jews, you better live the way of the kingdom. And so if he would proclaim the kingdom and point to the king of this kingdom, who is Jesus, his cousin, that was to come, definitely he will have to call out those who held a title and yet did not live according to the righteousness of the kingdom. And so it's not just about, let's not offend people, let's be wise, let's not call anyone names. If he knew his assignment, he fulfilled his assignment. I don't think he was very popular with the religious leaders, definitely not with Herod. And that was the reason he landed up in prison. So now you know why John was in prison. All because he performed his kingdom assignment. He was faithful to his assignment. And so here's a principle and a lesson that I think we should be aware of. Faithfulness to kingdom assignments sometimes can bring you predicaments you don't want to have and to places you don't want to be. Who wants to say amen to that one? You want to proclaim the kingdom? You want to point to the king? You want to prepare the people of God for the coming of Jesus? You're not always going to be popular. And just be thankful you don't get thrown into a prison. But just because you don't get into a prison doesn't mean that things will always go well with us. There are predicaments that you may have. You may find yourself in those kind of situations that you're not really happy about, but it's part of the deal. Uh, it can bring you to places that you don't want to go or you don't want to be. But if you want to fulfill kingdom assignments, these are non-negotiables. It comes with the package. Do you remember the sheep amongst wolves? Jesus declared it in chapter 10. And so John the Baptist definitely encountered a few wolves here. And the wolves did not take it sitting down to say, it's okay, we love you, you know, we, we are tolerant of you. Nope. They fell into the categories that Jesus warned about, the four categories here, religious leaders and the government of those days. And when that happens, when we find ourselves in these kind of a situations, I can tell you we will struggle with our faith as well as wrestle with doubts. Am I really on assignment? Did I hear correctly? Am I faithful in the correct way? How come? God, you know, you asked me to be on assignment. Why are these things happening to me? So with this background, now we can look at verse 2 and 3. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, John sends two of his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the coming one? Suddenly he's got questions. Doubt sets in. Is this the one or not? Or do we look for another? I think we have to ask one question first. Is doubt allowed? Is doubt allowed? Jesus seems to speak against doubt. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, when Peter was walking on water and then he starts to sink and Jesus saves him, the first line that Jesus said was, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So if you look at that passage, we would think, well, doubt's no good, right? It sort of counteracts faith, so I should not have doubt. Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, 
if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. So again, a relationship here between faith and doubt, meaning that if you want to have faith, then you cannot doubt. So in other words, we conclude that, that faith and doubt cannot coexist. If you want to have faith, you cannot doubt. If you doubt, you will not have faith. I don't know if that's your impression, but we have heard preachers share this before. So does it mean that we must have 100% faith and 0% doubt? That if you only have 1% doubt, that your faith is entirely cancelled? That cannot be true also, right? You see, so never push things to such an extreme where it's sort of you catch yourself in the bind. If you read your Bible, we see many biblical characters openly expressing doubt and they had many questions. Did it make them any lesser? I don't think so. At the end of Matthew, he records worship. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, after the resurrection. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. So can you worship and still have doubt? I think so, you can. Are we allowed to doubt and have questions? I believe so. I believe doubt is allowed and even to be expected as we grow and as we mature. And especially when you want to move on the things of the kingdom and on kingdom assignment, I believe there will be doubt along the way and we are to handle it in a healthy manner. The question is, what causes the doubt? You see, often the issue is not that we don't believe in Jesus. But usually it is our expectation of who Jesus is or who God is and how we expect Him to move or not move. When that expectation is not met, questions come in, then doubts begin to arise. And although we know that His ways and His thoughts are much higher than ours, we still expect Him, is it not, to move as we would like Him to or the way we want Him to do. And when it does not happen as we expect, that is where doubt sets in and questions begin to arise. See, John also had an expectation of Jesus. To him, he was boldly declaring this. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the King. He's going to restore the kingdom. The question is, what was John's expectation of how Jesus would restore the kingdom? You see, there was nothing wrong with saying that Jesus was the Christ or is the Christ. But how did John expect Jesus to restore the kingdom? Was it political? Was it military? In fact, he is the one also boldly declaring that he will be a victorious king who will set the captives free. He is the righteous judge who will judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. Is it all true? Definitely true. Anything wrong with this declaration? Nothing wrong at all. There was no doubt as to any of these statements being true. John himself prophesied it. There was one small problem. John is now in prison. And although Jesus was supposed to set the captives free, John was a captive who was still in prison. Although Jesus would judge the wicked, somehow Herod is still getting away scot-free. And to vindicate the righteous, John should be out of prison, but somehow he's still sitting down there. And when you have a lot of time to think, you better be careful. For John, it was this wet and grimy dungeon right in the middle of don't know where it is. He had a lot of time to think. And sometimes, isn't it true for us? We can start with faith and boldness in the beginning. John was declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Oh, this is the one that's coming after me. But when doubt and disappointment sets in, why am I still in prison? Why me, Lord? Why are all these things happening? And then he goes to Jesus and he says, are you the coming one? Or do I need to look for another? Hashtag, just checking. Have we all been there? I think we've all been there, right? And I want to assure you, I want to comfort you and encourage you. It is, it is okay to ask these questions. It's okay to have these doubts. It's okay in times of doubt and discouragement, ask Jesus. Don't go and ask anyone else. Ask Jesus, okay? John didn't ask his disciples, hey, you, you think he's the right one? No? He asked his disciples, can you go and check with the source? Go directly to Jesus, okay? I'm hearing all these things. You're giving me all these reports. You're hearing things. You're seeing things. Go and hear directly from Jesus. I want you to bring back word directly from Him. And so friends, it is good to hear from others. It's good to learn from others. But I've said it over and over again. The one you want to hear from is always Jesus. Do you understand? Others can comfort you. Others can encourage you. But one word from the Lord, one word, one personal word can speak into your situation and clarify for you and clear the doubt. And so it's okay. It's perfectly fine. God is big enough, I tell people. Jesus is big enough to take all our questions. You can scream and shout even a little bit. It's okay. Because the Lord knows exactly where you are and where we are. And I believe He wants to help us to clarify some of these things. But at the same time, you realize later on we will see how Jesus answers John. That Jesus doesn't align to us. We align to Him. So whatever you want to hear or however you want Jesus to answer, you must be prepared for how He will respond to you. You see, many times we want Jesus to, to change everything for me. But the truth of the matter is, He's the King. He's running the kingdom. He's advancing it according to His plan. We don't expect Him to align to us. We must learn to align to Jesus. So in the end, it's not what I think or how I feel that matters. Jesus is who He is. And whatever He does, whatever the King is doing, takes precedence over any or every situation I may find myself in. Now, that's a hard truth to swallow, but it's the truth. We align to Jesus. We don't expect Jesus to align to us. The next is this. John didn't ask to give up his faith. John asked to build up his own faith. You see, sometimes we need to clarify these doubts. It's not because we want to give up and we don't want to believe anymore. There are times where, Lord, I just need to make sense of this. Lord, I need to hear from this. Lord, I just need to hear one word from this because I'm, I'm wavering at this point in time. Will you help me so that it will anchor my faith? This means that your posture, the posture of the heart, when you're asking the question, makes all the difference. There's a difference between tempting the Christ to prove His unworthiness and testing the Christ to prove His worthiness. I hope you catch this, right? When we tempt, remember tempt and test are two words that seem to mean the same thing, but the nuance shows us the difference. The word tempt really means to try to 
test something or to prove that something is not worthy, you want to bring out the bad things about, about a certain product or a certain thing or a certain person. But the word test in the Greek is the opposite, is that you want to test it to a way that you want to prove its quality and prove its genuineness. And so whenever you have doubt, it's not going to Jesus and try to tear him down. It's trying to say, Lord, can you just talk to me? Can you help me make sense of this? Because I know you're good, except that I'm not seeing things happen the way I expected it. Can you help me understand something here? And when the Lord speaks, His worthiness is never in question. He will tell you, this is who I am. This is what's happening. You keep going on. You tell you, at the end of the day, it's going to work out okay. You may not feel it. You may not see it. You may not understand it. But you've got to trust me in this, you see? So the posture of our heart is very important. I don't think John was trying to give up his faith. John was trying to build up his faith. So friends, wherever you are right now, if you don't understand a certain thing and your faith needs building, it's okay to ask Jesus. It's okay to clarify that doubt that you have. We go on in Matthew 11, verses 4 to 5. And Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now here we see a relationship between the works of Jesus and the word that is proclaimed about Jesus. Remember John asked the disciples, he had heard about the works of Christ. He didn't say just the works of a man. He heard about the works of the Messiah. And so the disciples went to clarify with Jesus this question. Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah that we really talk about? Because the works seem to suggest it. But somehow I need to have an answer from you. Or do we wait for another one? John heard about these works. Jesus answered according to what John asked. You heard about these works? Now let me list out the works expected of the Messiah. And so if you read Matthew 11 verse 5, this is a summary. One verse summarizes everything that we have learned in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. Two chapters summarized in one verse. If I had done this one verse, it would have saved us a lot of weeks and time. One verse. And it says, the things which you hear and see, in other words, Matthew chapter 8 and 9 the disciples must have followed Jesus around and they brought news to John. What Jesus is saying is this, if you have seen the works of the Christ, these are the things expected of the Christ, then the works of the Christ will confirm the word that was being declared about the Christ. Very simple. Jesus then is saying, really, I am the Messiah. I am the one that was prophesied. Now, where do we get this understanding that the Messiah should be doing all these things? If you read in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, as well as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And these are only a few verses that talk about what the Messiah will do when He comes. For example, Isaiah 29, 18 onwards. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. The eyes of the blind shall see. Prophesied, when the Messiah comes, He will open deaf ears and He will open blind eyes. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Verse 6, then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. So there you go. Here again, the words 
concerning the Messiah point to the works of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news or good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so all these things Jesus did. I think John was really struggling. Remember the last phrase? The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Excuse me, sir, I'm still in prison. So are you really the Christ or not? If so, how come I'm still sitting down there? But Jesus answered him according to the way he asked. The works confirm the word. So Jesus fulfilled his messianic appointment and his messianic assignments. There's a side lesson for us to learn here. If we are people who declare the word of the king, then rightly, we must also do the works of the king. You see, we must follow our king. Because if a word is spoken about him, he carries out the works that is expected of him. So friends, if we are people of the word, then we must also be doers of the works of the kingdom. These things are expected and somehow it does not happen as expected. Not everything that was prophesied was fulfilled at that point in time. You and I know that in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus opened up the scroll and he read, he stopped short of that very last line. And the day of the vengeance of the Lord. He didn't declare that because that was not to be fulfilled yet. So the kingdom has come, but not in its fullness in that sense, that there are certain things that will demonstrate the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, but other things we will have to wait for a time in a while later. So here's another lesson for us. See, wrong expectations will lead to doubt and disappointments as we move on kingdom assignments if, if we do not discern and understand prophecy correctly. If we don't understand the Word of God, if we don't interpret it correctly, and we take it out of context, then we would start to impose expectations upon God and say, but this is what your word says. But how come you're not moving according to the word? And Jesus is not obligated to perform everything in there. He only does it according to the prophetic timeline of God. So if we are not careful, our own wrong expectations of who God is or what He should do can end up and lead to doubt and disappointments. At the same time, conversely, understanding prophecy would help us respond rightly in times of doubt and disappointment so that we can handle it better. Ours is a future hope, a future hope. And we know that all will be good when King Jesus comes for His kingdom and His people. So with that, we can now move to a next point called expectation and experience. You see, what we expect and what we experience sometimes can be two different things altogether. And I want to tell John the Baptist, I feel you, man, bro. I really feel you, bro. I mean, he hears about these things. He hears about the miracles. And he hears about the breakthroughs. And in response, Jesus then refers to all the breakthroughs and the miracles to confirm his Messiahship. And if you were John and if I was him... I want to be really honest with you. I would say, yeah, right, praise the Lord. Yeah, 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 but I'm still in prison. I'm still stuck here. You know? I mean, why, 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 how come miracles happen to everybody except me? Have you ever asked that question? 
And then the preacher will go, oh, but today is your day, you know, you can have your miracles. If it happened to that person, it can happen to you. And then you're like praying, you're standing there, you're racking up as much faith as you can have. And then after that, still nothing happens. And so your expectations, I mean, well-meaning, faithful, no doubt, doubt, does not line up with the experience or the non-experience. What happens when expectation is not matched by experience? What happens when, when miracles are experienced by everyone else except, except you? I can tell you the same questions come up again, right? Doubt begins to set in again. And then you begin to ask funny questions. Why not me? What is wrong with me? Did I sin? Did I lack faith? And so on and so forth. And my dear friends, if expectation and experience do not line up, can I just offer you some of these thoughts? Firstly, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is who He says He is. You've got to stand on this. He's still the healer, even though sometimes we have not received a healing. He's still a provider, even though sometimes we may have to go without a meal or two. He's still the master and He's still the king. It doesn't change anything. Our experience or no experience does not change any one of these things. He's still good. He's still faithful, gracious, and loving. As the king, he's still ruling, and he's still reigning, and he's still in total control. See, this first point, you've got to get it settled in your heart. God is good, period. God is loving, period. God is merciful. His, his love endures forever. His mercies will be unending. You just have to stand on that. Experience or no experience. Secondly, it doesn't change your status or position in Christ. You are who you are in Christ by faith according to grace. He has done all that is needed to be done for you to believe and receive and your position does not change. And no one can take that away from you. You see, the enemy will come to accuse you, to deceive you, um, to beat you down, to make you compare all these things will happen to you, but can I say a truth and I declare this over you? You are still a child of God. You are still a new creation in Christ. Experience or no experience, these things do not change. The third thing is this. If you have an assignment from the Lord, experience or no experience based on your expectation, it doesn't alter the assignment He has given to you. Whatever happens or not happens, our part is to be obedient and to be faithful. We keep keeping on no matter what. We can check our alignment. We can see if we have veered. We can see whether we have missed or have been distracted a little bit here and there. But our assignment stays. You see, it's the assignment, if you have one, and I hope all of us will discover that, it's the assignment that keeps you on that straight and narrow path. It is when you don't have an assignment, that's where you go all over the place. And that's why the saints need to be awakened, aligned, and assigned. If you have nothing to do, then you have a lot of time to think, and that's the whole problem. And you entertain all kinds of crazy and silly thoughts. But if you have an assignment, then you hang on to that, and you do it, experience or no experience, based on whatever expectation. Next, I believe the demonstration of the kingdom is for those who don't know the king. Usually, these things happen because the kingdom is being demonstrated for people who really need to understand who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is all about. But for those of us who already know the king, who have experienced him, who have seen his goodness, who have tasted the faithfulness and the grace of God, 
our own faithfulness is not dependent all the time on such encounters and experiences. Although it's nice. Okay, please don't think that I'm robbing you of experiences. I'm just trying to give you a perspective. If you know that God is good, then He is good. He doesn't have to keep having to lavish things over and over again to prove that He is good. The demonstration of the kingdom is demonstrated to those for them to know the king. But if you already know him, then you proclaim that. Because if you are one who has grown in maturity, we do not live by feelings or by sight. We live by faith. We live by faith. And that's a real test of someone having grown in the Lord and to trust him no matter what happens, experience or no experience. And whatever happens to us or not happens to us, external conditions must not affect our internal convictions. And the expectations may not line up with the experience or otherwise, but and outwardly Paul says, it's okay, we are perishing. But inwardly, our inner man is being renewed. What we're going through is temporary, but what we're going to receive, that weight of the glory, is going to be eternal. And so whatever happens externally or does not happen externally in the physical must not rock the convictions that will be internal. You've got to hang on to this rock of Jesus and stand on sure foundation. And finally, understand that any expectation we have, it must be eschatological, which means our expectation is a future hope. And you can't go wrong with that. Your expectation is it's going to be okay when Jesus comes. Your expectation is when Jesus comes, He's going to restore all things completely. The judge will come and vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be revealed. And so that's one expectation that will never fail, will never fall, and it will come to pass. The next thing we want to learn is about being real and authentic. Sometimes we read this, and as a younger Christian, I suppose I would have asked this question. Ayo, John the Baptist, you know, this forerunner wow, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And then he's so weak, and you know, he's got all these doubts. Matthew's record might be seen like giving him a few minus points. Yet at the same time, if you understand the purpose of what Matthew is doing here, his record was not meant to discredit John or his ministry or his faith. In fact, the next time when we come back, from verse 7 onwards, you will see Jesus affirming John and his ministry. Meaning to say, it's okay to ask these questions. There's nothing wrong. I don't hold it against John for having asked all these questions. So Matthew's record is really a very real and raw representation of, of the frailty of humanity, the weakness of men that all of us can understand and we can empathize with what John would have gone through. In fact, John was not the first to feel this way. Remember Elijah battled with all the prophets of Mount Carmel and later on, all Jezebel had to do was say, I'm going to get you. And he runs away and he goes before God and, and starts to wallow, starts to worry and he has doubt and he says, come on, will you just take me home? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, this guy really poor thing had to see the devastation of Jerusalem. And the way he went about his assignment through his appointment, he cursed the day that he was born. It's like, God, come on, why do you give this to me, you know? Could it have been someone else? I don't want to do this anymore. 
And somehow he stuck to his assignment. Moses leading the people out of Egypt was one thing. Helping them in the wilderness was a much harder job for him. And then he tells God, you gave me these people. I didn't ask for them. Can you just kill me right now and take me home? So John wasn't the first one to feel this way and he definitely will not be the last. And so you can be comforted in some way. If all these can feel this way, what about us? What about us? And so it's not wrong to have doubt or to be discouraged at times. It's how we respond that makes the difference. Do we take God as word? no matter how we feel or how we experience, or do we give in and give up on God or on our assignments and our faith? So, friends, it's okay. I, if, you have, if I'm repeating this, it's maybe some of you need to hear this over and over again. It's okay to be real and to be authentic with Jesus and with one another. Don't play act with God, okay? Don't try to act tough with God. Huh? Don't try to act holy or spiritual and give the right phrases to God. Do you realize He knows everything about you? So if you want to bluff uh, or wayang uh, or play act, uh, God knows anyway uh, whether you're just trying to be strong in front of Him. That's why I tell people, don't just listen to nice testimonies of successes. I'd rather you learn the flip side also. Listen to the doubts, the discouragements and the struggles and learn how these, their faith, were built up and you can learn a lot more than just to compare successes and victories. I want to share a small incident with you. And this concerns these three names, Jeffrey, Jennifer, and Jenna. Last October, Jenna, a 16-year-old, suddenly fell sick, was taken ill, brought to the hospital, and they found that she had meningitis. Soon enough, she slipped into a coma. I was asked by one of my friends to go and stand with the family to pray, and this is the only daughter. So Jeffrey and Jenna are the parents. By the time I went to pray, it was already more than a few, five, six months, and Jenna had been in a coma all this while. And I spoke with the father. I didn't get to meet with the, with the mother. And he was, he, was, he was strong. I mean, he was sharing the incidents. He was sharing the details. The daughter was just lying there in ICU in coma. And after he shared all these stories, I asked him one question. I said, thanks for sharing about your daughter, but how are you? And he said, if not for the grace of God, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. And I came away from that place. I was just so encouraged by this father. I mean, it's one thing to say, I believe God will heal. But to go through day by day, week by week, month by month, and to still see the daughter in ICU, and, th- and she's still there, by the way, in the hospital right now. How do you have that strength if not the grace of God? And we can talk about having faith to move mountains, not to have doubt, and then we'll see you know, people come through. But we have to be careful also as much as we want to encourage and to help people to turn their eyes upon Jesus. That as they go through these, to bear through day by day, it's a very different story. But what an example of faith and grace where their expectations of the Lord has still not changed. They still believe God can heal, but the experience physically does not line up but they stand strong and the church is rallying around them, friends just going there to pray for them and to stand with them. I share with you also another part of my own journey and a couple of years ago, I was introduced to this song by my wife, Serene, and this song is by Twyla Paris called The Warrior is a Child. This is a very old song 
You can Google it and you will find this on YouTube. And I love the lyrics because it says, Lately I've been winning battles left and right, but even winners can get wounded in the fight. People say that I'm amazing, strong beyond my years, but they don't see inside of me. I'm hiding all the tears. And the chorus goes, They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and cry for just a while. Because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. And they are beautiful lyrics because time again, you know, we are called to be strong. We are battling. Archippuses, we are fellow soldiers, right? We are warriors for the kingdom and we are fighting the battles. But the truth is, before we are even warriors for Jesus, we are children, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And deep inside this armor, there are moments where we just want God to just sayang us and love us and comfort us, right? That we can just run into His arms and say, Dad, I can't, I can't take this anymore. You know, the battle is just too intense. The second verse, Unafraid because His armor is the best, but even soldiers need a quiet place to rest. People say that I'm amazing, never face retreat because you just see me chong and chong and chong. But they don't see the enemies that lay me at His feet. And there are times where you're just so broken because things don't happen the way that you expect it to happen. And you run crying to the Lord because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. See, when expectation and experience don't line up, there's only one thing you can do. Keep running back to Jesus. Keep running back to the Father. Finally, we talk about discouragement, and that's what we've been talking about this entire message, together with encouragement. I like that Jesus did not rebuke John. For John's discouragement and doubt, Jesus did not rebuke John at all. In fact, Jesus accepted John's doubts and discouragement. There are other places in the, in the Scriptures, in the Gospel, where you will see Jesus rebuking the disciples and even the Pharisees. That was for a different reason at a different time. John's posture, I believe, Jesus understood perfectly well. In fact, the way Jesus answered indicated his high regard for John's position and his maturity in the things of the kingdom. All Jesus had to do was to reply using Scripture, you realize? All he had to say was, you know the Scriptures, right? This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing it. Done. I don't have to explain it anymore. I mean, can you imagine if, if the Lord just would speak something like that to you? This would show me that Jesus expected, you want to talk about expectations? Jesus expected John to know and understand Scriptures. Jesus expected John to rise above experiences and feelings. Jesus expected John to be matured enough to, as a spiritual leader of his own right to make the right decisions after he hears the reply from Jesus. Wow, I think this is high regard, man. I think this is respect for John, for who he is. He didn't have to molly Cotler and say, no, it's okay, la, sayang you, la, don't worry. La. He didn't have to go in that way. That indicates a certain level of John's maturity. I would love that. I would love that. And at the end, Jesus encouraged John with a beatitude statement. Now, you should know what a beatitude is right now. It's a blessedness statement, a state of blessedness, a makarios of having encountered the gods. That's how the Greeks would see this. Of having received favor from, from the God. 
Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he. You are in a state of blessedness. You will achieve that if you are not caused to stumble. That's what the word means in the Greek. If you are not scandalized by me. If you are not made to compromise because of serving me. If you are not made to stumble because of serving me. If you will bear through, if you will hold steady, if you will stand firm, then blessed is the one. Blessed are you. Now, why did Jesus use this? Because he was drawing from an Old Testament reference. There was already a prophecy about the Messiah or about God in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. In verse 11, it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that these people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In other words, don't fear these guys. Don't worry about these guys, whether they conspire you against you or not. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Does this sound familiar? Don't fear men. Fear God. You see, exactly the same words. And in verse 14, if you would fear Him, verse 14, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Jesus was quoting from Old Testament to tell John, you know the Scriptures. You know what it says about me. That when I come, you have to fear me, you revere me. Because if you don't do that, and you happen to fear men more than you fear me, then I will become a stumbling block to you. I will become a trap to you. I will be an offense to you. And I will cause you to lose out on things. But if you would fear me, then I will be a sanctuary in that time of disappointment and of discouragement. Now, this is a choice you need to make. If you treat me to be a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense, then you will deny me. Sound familiar? But if you treat me to be a sanctuary and you come running to me and still confess me, then you will declare me and confess me. The choice is yours. Blessedness is at stake. And blessedness is your reward. Do you remember what we learned in Matthew chapter 10? Exactly the same words. Exactly the same teachings. So as we draw this to a close, as we conclude... What are your expectations? What are your own expectations of Jesus, of serving Him? What if some of these expectations are not met? What if it's not as you had expected? I hope that this teaching has given you some perspective and some insights. But I want you to remember this context of John and Jesus about being appointed and being assigned. It's not the kind of doubt that we have like uh, when things go bad, when aircon breaks down or there's no Wi-Fi connection. That kind of, we, we think we're already suffering for Jesus. It's not about that. It's about, it's about the kind of doubts that we receive when you're moving on assignment. Half the time, the people of God are not moving on assignment, but we already have doubts. Can you imagine if you're moving on assignment? Remember the context. It's when you're on assignment, these doubts come in. And in times of opposition, challenge and persecution, what is the relationship between faith and doubt? What if he responds or not respond according to the ways that we expect? 
Let me encourage you again. It's okay to ask Jesus, but with the right posture, He will answer you. In doubt and discouragement, please know that Jesus does not rebuke us, but He will encourage us. He is who He is, no matter what you might be going through. Will you find shalom in Him, or will you be stumbled by Him? And I leave you with the words of Jesus, a makarios statement, a blessedness statement, a beatitude. May you be blessed as you are not offended by Him, not stumbled by Him, but you may remain faithful to the end. And this expectation of blessedness, according to this, is definitely a sure expectation that you can receive it. And so let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your words and your words of encouragement, your words of comfort even. Lord, we can be real and authentic before you and before one another. And we want to confess that there have been more than once or twice where we have doubted you, where we have had more than enough questions to throw at you. And sometimes we feel that it's not the right thing to do because we have been told that we are not allowed to doubt and we feel so condemned and lousy if we should even question you with one little thing. But Lord, tonight we know that we can run to you. We can ask you and you can answer us. Lord, help us because sometimes the answer may not be what we want to hear. It may be too difficult for us even to accept. But Lord, we remember, we align to you. Will you give us grace Will you help us in times of doubt and of disappointment? And will you strengthen us so that we will ever stay faithful to finish what you have given to us to do? And in the end, may it bring you pleasure, may it bring you glory, and even for us as we hold this one line, blessed is he who is not offended because of you. Lord, we will praise you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.